Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 2, and we will begin our reading there in verse 1. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I want to do something today that is a little bit different for me. But I want to share a little bit of a special intro with you. I know you're thinking, well, you chasing a rabbit, that's not different. But this is more intentional. I think my heart this week just almost exploded. It was just such a week. We saw so much in the world around us and there's already a lot of chaos and and death and different things going on. And I, I have spent a measure of time with God asking God for some relief in my own heart and soul. And I want to share a Uh, something with you that I believe is of the Lord and I believe that God has given it to me for not only my good but for all of us and I want to talk about something before we read our text this morning lay a little groundwork this is the Bible and I want to talk about what it is for a moment and what it is not if just forget about what I think Forget about what you think or have studied or or learned in school or seminary or whatever. Just we'll let it speak for itself. Originally, this and the word Bible is a comes from a Greek word biblos, which just simply means book. But this is not simply a book. So if we go back before it was called a book or the book. It was called a covenant. In the Old Testament, barit was the word for covenant. In the New Testament, diatheke is the word for covenant. Because the first major language in which the Greek and Hebrew was translated, if you don't count Aramaic uh, parts of it, the first major language into which the Bible was translated was Latin. And for covenant, they had a word called testament, or we get our word testament from that word. Now, I say all of these terms because I think it will help us to understand what the Word of God really is. It is a covenant. And when you think about a covenant or an agreement like between two parties... And this is an agreement, a covenant between God and His people. There is the Old Covenant and there is the New Covenant. And the New Covenant builds off of the Old Covenant and they're both very, very important. But the point is when you have a covenant, it is between particular groups or particular parties. When I signed the paperwork to buy my house... I didn't get a loan from everybody in the world. 
I got a loan from a particular bank. And the bank didn't uh, finance that house for everybody in the world. They sat down with Loretta and I and, of course, uh, Loretta and me, and we signed about, oh, I don't know, 965,000 pieces of paper. But it was an agreement that we met. Not everybody was invited to that room. It wasn't for everybody. When you also look at the Word of God and think about covenant and think about the word testament, think about in legal terms nowadays, the last will and testament of someone. That is their desire. And in our world today, one of the hardest things in the world to do is change a will. Because once a person puts it on paper and says, this is my will and this is my testament, my last will and testament, this is how I want it to be. And so people are invited in after you die for the reading of your will. Now, if somebody showed up that wasn't on that list, it would be pretty ridiculous. As a matter of fact, if they came in and started sharing their opinions about it, it would be even more ridiculous. And someone would have to, as politely as a lawyer can possibly muster, would have to look at that person and say, I'm sorry, I, I apologize that, that this doesn't make sense to you, but none of this is for you. This is a covenant and a will and testament between this person and his or her heirs. I'm headed somewhere. The Bible is the covenant between God and His people. And I, I, I will have to tell you this. It, it, it's not... We, we, when you try to use it for something else, oh, massive frustration sits in. I told someone this morning I had a blood vessel right here that looked like football at least a couple of days this week because of the my frustration and I'm just telling you I cried out to God and I, I, I am like Lord I can't sleep and 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 don't be alarmed I'm, I'm working through this one but I actually got to where I didn't feel like eating it, it's it's okay I'm I'm I know you're thinking wow call in the family I'm telling you my heart has been heavy but God helped me. He helped me with this. This is not a guide on how to live. Matter of fact, I remember a rich young ruler who came up to Jesus one time and said, you know, good teacher, God wouldn't let him forget that word. He said, I, I, I'm interested in what you mean by Good. Where did you get your idea of good? And, and, and they got into a discussion about the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I have kept those from my youth up. And God says, well, that's fine. And then he hit it over the fence when he looked at the rich young ruler and said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then come and follow me. And that's when the rich young ruler realized he wasn't invited to the reading of the will. He realized if you try to apply this book to him, it'll only lead to arguments. It'll only lead to compromise. 
it'll just lead to more fusses and fights. And I thought about it this week. I don't understand why people think that it's okay to take a human life and all of that. And I know that's been hot in the news this week. But I can tell you something. Don't expect people in the world that don't worship Jesus Christ to ever embrace this book. They're at a place they don't belong. Now, I, I don't mean that to sound harsh. I'm just telling you. I understand better, I think, why Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist in modern history, I think I understand better why he didn't preach on abortion or preach on gay rights or anything. You know what he preached? He preached two lost people and he preached one thing. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. He didn't say you need to read this book more. He didn't tell them this book will help you get your marriage together. Well, this is not a guide for marriage. This is a book that was written. It's a covenant between God and His people. And there's so many things in here that God will say about marriage and sexuality and all of that that the people that don't worship Jesus Christ, they are never going to get it. It will just lead to, to more Facebook arguing and more in each other's face and more frustration and, and, and you and I will maybe die ahead of our time worrying about it. It's incredibly frustrating. Arguments, opinions people have. Uh, oh man, it, they're people that uh, they might even be sitting in a church somewhere this morning because I'll tell you what has happened. For people who have a lot of problems with a lot that's in this book, there are churches that accommodate them. Did you know that? They're everywhere. They're accommodated. There are churches in Rutherford County right now, this morning, meeting as we're meeting. And if you do not believe that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, that does not mean you're not a Christian, at least not in that church. Because if you're going to try to embrace what's in this book and you don't worship Jesus Christ and he's not transformed your life, then you're either going to have to just give up and get saved or compromise. And that's what happens. I, I, I want to just read you something from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 5, you can read along with me, he says to Corinth, he said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. He said, I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or the covetous and, swin covetous and the swindlers and, or with idolaters. And uh, he said, because if you had to get away from all of them in the world, you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to move to Mars. He said, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, that's an abusive person, or a drunkard or a swindler. He said, I told you not to even eat with such a person. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Did you hear that? What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? He says, it doesn't sound like it. 
You got a guy there that was sleeping with his or in a relationship with his father's wife. And Paul says very little about him. He's upset with the church. He says, why are you not doing something about it? Then he goes on in verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. They're never going to get this. When you tell them you can't sleep with somebody to whom you're not married, that's old fogey, that's wow. That's, that's, old, that's old timey stuff. That's, that's, you you got to, you know, update your thinking, whatever. I, if, if that's where you are, this, you, this is just going to aggravate you. Really. Until you decide that Jesus Christ is preeminent and I worship Christ. And the reason I say worship Christ is because it is through Christ that we have a relationship with God. And if you don't have that, and you haven't already decided that it doesn't matter if he tells me to wear my pants backwards the rest of my life, I'm going to spin them around. Because he is God. If you're still having those arguments about, well, I, I go to church and I, I give some, but <laughs> tell you they got more money than I do. And all, if you're still having those arguments, look, it's, it's fine. I'm going to quit losing sleep over you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to try to tell you about Jesus, but I'm going to stop expecting you to embrace what he says. Let me give you one that will make your hair stand up, if you have any. If you tell people, that the time to exercise choice over your body is when before, is before you have sexual intercourse with someone to whom you are not married. I want to tell you, they break out the spray cans and come to your church. I can't stand that. And when you talk to people who are so-called Christians... I've, I've had them tell me, Mike, you can't expect that. Kids are, they're going to have sex. You, it's just going to happen. The, the best time woman for, for a woman to look at a man and say, you will not tell me what to do with my body is the first time he puts his hand somewhere it doesn't belong. That's when you make the choice. Now you might say, and if you do, that's fine, I, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm just going to love you, and I'm, I'm not going to try on Facebook to convince you. I've had enough fire bent dance off the end of my fingertips this week. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about it. If that sounds old fogey or foreign or ridiculous to you, I completely understand. Because not everybody is invited to the reading of the will. It won't ever make sense to you. And if that don't get on your nerves, there'll be plenty of other things that will. This is God's covenant with his people. It's not a guide to just how to have a strong marriage in general. There are books like that. It's not just a guide of good advice. I have people sometimes who are very critical of Scripture who talk about, well, you know, Confucius, he lived way before the Apostle Paul. Get you a good book by him. He's got some good advice. As a matter of fact, 
Those guys, those Greek philosophers, Aristotle and all of them, and Plato and all of them, the golden rule, uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, know, that, that was not born out of Christianity. That was a thought that Jesus taught, but that was the golden rule that had been taught already uh, centuries before the Bible was ever written. There, I'm saying to you, there are tons of great books out there that will help you with, you know, just getting through life. This is not it. This is a will and testament between God and His people. And we're going to kill ourselves, church, and die frustrated if we keep expecting lost people to embrace this. And maybe you're sitting here right now going, well, you've already said two or three things that I don't know if I really agree with. Don't you worry about agreeing with me. Read this. And if this causes you a problem, you got a way bigger problem than me. I'm not going to apologize for it. This says engaging in homosexual activity is a sin. Actually, it says it is an abomination. If you go on Facebook with people that are social media or somebody at work or maybe somebody even at church and you get into an argument about, well, you know, I think there's lots of ways of looking at it. Some people say that the Bible don't even address that and blah, 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 and on and on and on. Just, 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 just stop it right there. I'm telling you, you are headed toward heart attack city, friend. Because until a person has had their life transformed, you see, this was written for people that God chose before he even created the world. That's right. He chose us before he even created the world. And this is what he wrote to them. Stop fighting over it. Burn your copy. I mean, what you got to lose? I, 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 don't burn it. Come and give it to the Rapaskis and they'll give them homeless people. <laughs> I won't fight with you anymore about it. I, I hope I mean that. <laughs> I, 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 I just know. I, I'm one of those kind of people that, man, if the tape measure says it's three foot, it's three foot. Okay? And I'm going to die on that hill. That's just how I'm made. And I tell you, it's led me down some roads that have not been comfortable for me. Let me tell you this. It is not those people. Those people that are marching today around Catholic churches or wherever they are today doing whatever. And our, our team here, isn't this crazy? Our security team's on alert today. I told them, I said, you may hear some spray cans rattling outside. We might get crylined before the day's over with. I don't know. I, I'm just telling you, if not today, it may come. I, I, I don't know. But th those people, I'm telling you, those people are lost, and, and that's, that's just where they are. But let, let, let me tell you this. When 
Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem with his disciples. He didn't go into the tavern and start turning over tables. He didn't go into the harlot house and start turning over beds. He didn't go down to the gambling casino and and start throwing chips and cards around. He went to his father's house. He says, the world has encroached into my father's house. And this place that should be a place of prayer, you have turned it into a marketplace and a den of thieves. Now what goes on out there is totally different. And it says in John chapter 2 that the disciples in verse two seven, chapter 217, his disciples remember something that came from I think Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. The, the world's going to do what it's going to do. But you and I, if we're truly born again, if we've put our faith in Christ, if we've decided, if he says give a tent, that's fine. If we've not decided, though, that, well, it wouldn't matter if he said give it all because I don't own anything. If you've not come to the conclusion that I'm a steward, I don't own anything. We're not owners, we're managers. We are stewards over what God has given us. If you're not there, I can just tell you, this is just going to keep getting on your nerves. If you want to live with your girlfriend and then come to me and ask me, will you marry us? Because, well, we know this is wrong and we'd like to make it right. If you think July 27th or whatever date you chose, that as soon as I say you're a husband and wife, that the angels in heaven are going to stand and sing. You have no clue what this is about, do you? You've shown up for a meeting where you look ridiculous. And I look ridiculous, assuming that you're going to understand it. Because you're just not. Now, that brings us to today's message. We're going to look at the master's making of a godly woman. I said godly mother, or godly mother. Not not just a good mother. There are a lot of good mothers. But a godly mother. And there's a difference between just a good mother and a godly mother. There, there really is. And, and there are things in here that are going to teach us today what, what goes into being a godly mother. Uh, it, I know today's Mother's Day. It's, it's a, we're not just preaching this because it's a secular holiday, so to speak. And it's, it, it, it started in the United States in 1907, I think. Anna Jarvis was in a, an American... Uh, Methodist Episcopal Church in West Virginia and she decided to have a service to honor all the mothers and Mother's Day was birthed in America. And there'll be churches today they're going to give flowers out to the oldest mother, the mother with the most children, the mother with the least children in jail, That's great. I, I, I have nothing against that. But this is not a guide for motherhood. God says, no, this is what a mother will be like that has already made me her Lord and Savior and follows my call and not her heart 
and not good advice and not a few bits and pieces that she finds in here. No, this is a godly mother. This is a godly mother. When it comes to Scripture, there's few more important people in the Word of God than Moses. But he had a mother that we ought to talk about, and let's look at her. Exodus chapter 2 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Uh, This was, he actually married his dad's sister. He married his aunt. So I'll let you figure out what state he's probably from. The woman conceived, her name is Yochebed. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him three months. Tov is the word for beautiful. Usually means good. Boker Tov is good morning in uh, Hebrew. Uh, She saw that he was good. And if you read over in the book of Acts, it says she saw that he was good in the sight of the Lord. God had a purpose for this child. She hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, and her maidens walked alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister, (laughs) why God is awesome, is he not? His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? I I know of a good one. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I'm going to pay you to nurse your own child. Just how he works. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she named him Moses. And said, because I drew him out of the water. So his name means Moshe. Amram is his dad. We don't even hear about him, but just in passing. And it's several chapters later. But we hear about his mother, Yochebed. Moses is usually the one we hear the most about, though. He was an incredible, incredible servant of God. I, I relate to him really well. And by the way, if this week you've been wanting to take your staff and beat some rocks in half, you're in good company. He did the same thing. He had all he could stand. He was up to here with it several times. He was very human. Uh, and boy, he showed it. And it sometimes it got the best of it. But let me just tell you a little bit about him. He had a lot against him to start with. When God called him into the ministry, he was already 80 years old. He spent 40 years growing up in Pharaoh's house, 40 years 
herding sheep in the desert of Midian. And then he spent his last 40 years leading God's people through the wilderness. So he's 80 years old. Another problem he had is his marriage. He did not marry an Israelite. He married a Midianite. She would have been blacker than this Bible. And there was a time that his brother and sister kind of had a couple of issues with that, and God cleared that up for him really, really quickly. But he didn't marry a woman that had any heart for the Israelite people. And, and I know a lot of times, you know, people feel like God's calling them, but you're married and you're wondering, well, is God calling my wife or God calling my husband as well? I'm telling you, God can work through all of that, and he proves it here with Moses. He also had a handicap because he could not speak well. And I, I don't know if he stuttered. I, I don't have any idea about that. But I just know that he had a speech handicap. And I love it when he just kept bringing it up and telling God, I can't talk. I just, just uh, you know me, I, I just can't talk and I can't this and I can't that. And God finally said, hold on a second. What is in your hand? Uh, well, it's a stick. <laughs> Put it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground, and you remember what happened. They had church. God said, pick it up. So he picked it up, and of course you know the story. Later on, he would throw the stick down in Pharaoh's court, and that serpent would devour Pharaoh's serpents that his magicians had conjured. And, and so uh, later on, he would hold it out over the Red Sea and open it, and, and it would bring water from a rock and all of that. Just remember the lesson here when you're in the middle of telling God all the things you don't have, God may ask you, well, just give me what you do have. Because I don't care if it's as simple as a stick. If you give it to me, I can do something with it like you've never imagined in your life. Handicapped background. He was a murderer. He was wanted for murder. <laughs> and God sends him right back to the town where his picture's in the post office. Really? Yeah, you need to go back there. Well, no, you know, I've I got some history there. I know you got some history there. That's your fault, though. I get you through that, but I'm not going to make it go away. <laughs> you got mad. You killed somebody. He also had that issue, too. He had the issue of anger. Most of these issues he was able to overcome in time. But this one he didn't. And it got the best of him. And the third time, after he lost his temper, broke tablets of stone one time, killed a man one time, God told him to touch a rock. He said, oh, I'll touch it. I'm going to touch it like I like to touch that crowd. God told him, he says, you won't go to the promised land. You've allowed your anger to be preeminent in your life. I have to be first. Remember, might not make sense to you, Moses. It might seem unfair. People 2,000 years later will be saying, Moses, that that just doesn't sound like my Jesus. But he said, it is yours, and I am God, and you're not going in the promised land. 
And that's how that works. Well, how does a man like this come along? Part of it's because of a godly mother. I may not get to all of this, so just I'll try not to. I'll try not to keep you long. If it gets to be four, somebody let me know. I want to tell you, first of all, about the days a godly mother has to face. The days a godly mother has to face. In verse 12 of chapter 1 that we didn't read, says they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Who's in dread of the sons of Israel? The Egyptians were. God had blessed His people, and they grew in number, and they were getting greater and greater, and, and, and they had become a problem. They had become a threat, and get this, to the Egyptian way of life. They didn't serve Egyptian gods. They didn't honor Egyptian customs. They were not Egyptians. They were Israelites to the core. They had been out of the will of God. That's why they spent 430 years there in Egypt. But these people were not Egyptians. And because of that, they were becoming a threat to the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh said that we are going to have all of these boys under a certain age tossed into the river and drowned. Can you imagine being a part of a society that is willing to kill innocent children because they could be a hindrance or an inconvenience to the progress of the nation. I have people tell me sometimes, well, if we didn't have abortion, what would we do with all of these unwanted children? Inconvenience. Got to be pretty wicked for that one. Well, that's where they were. And those are the kind of days that she has to face. Let let me tell you, you and I, I, I know you know we're there. The meetings with Pharaoh and Joseph are over. Actually, it says in Scripture that there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. Joseph had been the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph was a man of God who saved Egypt from starvation, but they had long since forgotten old Joseph, and Egypt had turned very pagan and very anti-God. Boy, our country. And, And don't get me wrong, I'm not expecting them to live by this, okay? But just to let you know that you and I live in a new day, friend, I asked the men... Maybe Howie, well, you weren't here, but I, he probably still knows. Howie's bad about answering my questions. When I'm trying to let him kind of simmer, he's smart. We talked Wednesday night, the first mega church in the United States of America. A mega church is considered any church with 2,000 plus attendees. The first mega church in America, and we talked about several. They were guessing, and it, it's, it was good. It, we, several to choose from, but it's probably going to surprise some of you if you didn't know this. The first mega church in America met in the capital of the United States of America. On December the 4th, in the year 1800, there were no churches in D.C. D.C was it that 
wonderful, vibrant city that it has become now. <laughs> there were no churches, and there were a lot of people there because uh, that's where the leadership of the nation had gathered and their families, but there were no churches. So this is what happened. Now, really, you, you're going to think I'm lying, so you'll just have to look it up. But for a hundred years, it was the largest church in America. Thousands of people met there from various denominations. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson, he always gets a, a short end of the stick. People like to talk about what a heathen he was. He went to church there every Sunday. Every Sunday. And guess what? When they needed hymnals, they finally decided, we need some hymnals. You know who bought them? Congress. Congress said, we'll buy the hymnals for the church that meets here in the Capitol. And when it finally got so big in the rotunda, they had to move out into the house chambers. They were spilling out everywhere because the church was enormous. We're talking all the way from the time of Thomas Jefferson. Abraham Lincoln actually worshipped in this same church nearly 70 years later. A long time. And guess who the praise team was? The Marine Brass Band played the music. Now let me just ask you, do you think that would happen today? Do you think Congress would say, hey, we'll buy you some hymnals? I know this nation was not considered a Christian nation, but let me tell you how it started, and I don't care what people say nowadays. The truth is, our founding fathers weren't trying to make everybody a Christian, but they said we need some objective uh, uh, guide for what is right and what is wrong. And again, the reason it didn't work and the reason that everybody doesn't behave is because, once again, they use the Word of God. But unless your life has been transformed by God, and you have a relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ, then thou shalt not kill is not going to stop you from murdering somebody. But they said, we want a guide. And we need something. That'll help guide us in the right direction. And they use Scripture. All I'm saying to you is, we live in a time that Joseph's been forgotten, friend. Pagans rule the day. They really do. It's sad, but it's how it is. And this is what's really sad. Not all of God's people thought Egypt was a bad thing. Now, that's, that's what really breaks my heart. After they got out of Egypt and they were out there, if, if, I'm going to read uh, from Numbers 11, verse 4. It says, the rabble, <laughs> the rabble who were among them, these are a bunch of grumbling and complaining Israelites, uh, among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which... We used to eat free in Egypt. And oh, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. 
there were people that started missing Egypt. That's the problem. That's what gets us in a bind, friend. I am telling you, not everybody who is sitting in a church this morning has submitted their life to Jesus Christ. And when you start trying to get them to live by this book, when you start telling them about God's design for purity before marriage and within marriage, and, and, and when we get to the gender issues and all of that, we've got a whole bunch of people that are rambling around and, and causing confusion and, and, and it just frustrates frustrates you to death because we're expecting them to serve a God that they do not know. This was not written for them. It just wasn't. It won't ever make sense. It just does it. Oh. There were some of them, they missed Egypt so badly. Before it was over with, God answered their prayer. He didn't send them back to Egypt. He let them die where they were. Days she'll face. We'll do at least one more. Some discernment she must possess. It says in verse 2 that she saw that he was beautiful. I've never known a mother to look at a child and go other, say otherwise. And I've seen some kids before that I thought, hmm. But we preachers are trained. We, out in the parking lot before we go in to a newborn baby, we exercise, stretch, get our minds ready. Because we know we may go in there and see a kid that's got a head that looks like a black Angus calf. And it might be the ugliest baby we ever saw in our life, but we know how to hide our surprise. And go, look at that. And they go, no, it's this one over here. Oh, look at that. (laughs) She saw more than that, though. Acts chapter 7, verse 20, it says, his Moses' parents, they knew he was special, and it says, in the sight of God. She knew that God had a plan for that child. I wish parents, and again, it goes back to this. When this becomes more than just a book to you, then you will begin to look at your children and go, I don't care if they win every beauty pageant in the world. I don't care if they can throw a baseball through four inches of plywood. I don't care what kind of talents they show. I'm not going to let them throw my baby in the Nile River and hope he jumps out at an Olympic swimmer. That's not what I'm looking for. I want to know what God has for this child. That God has a purpose. And I'm not saying all of those other things are not good. But if you keep pressing upon your child that God has a purpose for you. God can use your life. God can transform you. Mothers, I'm going to tell you something. That's one of the best things you could ever instill in your child. That God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the sight of God. And He has a purpose for you. And He's had a purpose for you before you were even formed in the womb. Boy, those are some things that, some discernment she'll have to possess. She'll have to possess. She knew if I keep this baby here, I can't save it. Pharaoh's going to get it. He's going to kill it. I'm going to have to put this child in the hands of God. I'm going to have to do something that's not going to be easy to do. 
Second, or thirdly, and we move right into it, the danger she must fear. It says she hid him for three months. In verse 2, she, she knew, I, I'm a fool if I don't take the enemy seriously. If I don't realize and know that there's an enemy out there named Pharaoh and he is after my child. If I get casual about it and, and not care where my child goes and let him wander around unattended and don't bring him up with the understanding that you have an enemy, son, and he will take you out of here. And I think sometimes with, with parents, when, when, when you let, you know, I heard James Dobson say this years ago, and it's so true. He said, if you let your children date lost you can give up now. Really? You say, well, what am I going to do? Have him come in the house if he wants to date my daughter and just ask him, are you born again Christian? Do you love the Lord? It, yeah. I remember a little boy asked Nikki to the prom one time. He had to come see me first. Yes, sir, buddy. I had a ghillie suit back then and a sniper rifle laying across my lap when he got there. I told him, son, at a thousand yards, you put your hand on her leg and I'll turn your head into a canoe. No, I didn't. I didn't have to. He was already petrified. Nikki had already told him, you know, my, my daddy has a lot of guns and He's got land behind the house. So behave. <laughs> my, my daddy will volunteer to help him look for you. Oh. Don't be a fool. Don't just think, well, kids are going to be kids. And yeah, they are. The human beings, there's an enemy out there. If I told you right now that we had been contacted, that there was a sniper up in those trees, some deranged individual, and he was trying to shoot and kill people, you would never let you, the first place you'd go would be the nursery if you got a kid there, would you not? Would you tell your kid, yeah, you can go on out in the parking lot? I mean, what are the odds? All kids are going to want to go to the parking lot at some time. Man, alive. I'm telling you, there's someone sharper than a sniper. Decisions that she has to make. Not sure where the father was in all of this. We don't hear much from him. Maybe she had a home like a lot of homes nowadays where the dad don't do much of the spiritual stuff. Sometimes that's left up to the mother. Boy, I, I see it all the time. Dad, why are you not being the spiritual leader in your home? Maybe your life has not been transformed yet. I, I understand that. Let him transform your life. Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ first. Let God change your life, and then you become the spiritual leader and protector of your home. It's just not a task that God gave to the Yochebeds. And oh, it says when the lady found little Moses, he was crying. He didn't even like the idea. He didn't like being out there floating around in the river on a, on a boat. Little 
basket with pitch and tar on it. But guess what? Sometimes being a good parent and being a well-liked parent is not the same thing. And sometimes that's one of the hardest things for us parents. We need our children. we got so many emotional deficits on our, in our own life. If we didn't feel like I'm my child's hero... Other kids don't get to do things my child does. I host parties other kids wouldn't never get to be a part of. I do lots of things that I, I know is kind of off the cuff a little bit, you know. But, 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 but my child just loves me to death. You've got to love your child more than you love your child loving you. Sometimes they're going to cry when you put them in safe places. But it's just how it is. Well, I think I've about got to the end of it. The deliverer, last of all, she must trust. Those were the verses we read in 8 and 9 where God worked it out to where his very own mother not only got to nurse him, but got paid to do it. That's how God works things out. My friend, thank God if you have a godly mother. A good mother's one thing, but a godly mother. Oh, I bet there were times. See, I, I was raised by my grandmother. And there were times, boy, I thought, we, we had this red plum tree right outside the kitchen window of the old house we lived in. We, we lived in a house, I always looked, at Terry, looked to Terry Skidmore for this, because we kind of grew up the same way. We had a house, you could go with a dishpan of water. Some people don't even know what a dishpan is. Dishpan of water, and we wouldn't go outside. My grandmother would take it and swing it toward the corner of the porch. And it was a built-in porch with walls around it. But there were so many holes in the porch, especially down on that corner, the dishwater just go right through. You just hadn't lived till you could throw a pan of dishwater and it disappeared. Well, we didn't have a lot. That old red plum tree that was right outside that kitchen. And there were times growing up I thought, if that plum tree don't soon die, I'm going to. Because she could pick a hickory off of that thing, son. Boy, she could break a stud horse with that thing. She broke too. My brother and I, he's leading worship in a church in South Carolina this morning. I've been a pastor now for four decades. I can tell you something, friend. If it had not been for a godly mother, and she was our grandmother, but she was a godly, godly grandmother. There's no telling how we would have turned out. She prayed for us. I didn't even realize it until I got ready to leave home. She was a little woman, and I remember when I left home, her little face got all twisted and tears just poured down her little eyes. And she says, I've done all I can do now. You're on your own. I'm putting you in God's hands. I think it was then that I realized how much that woman loved me. 
I know I've told you, but in closing, when she died, Loretta called me. I couldn't go to the funeral. I, I, everybody expected Mike would do the funeral. I couldn't. I was doing a graduate research project in Israel. And over there, it was nighttime when Loretta called. said, Mike, Granny Snellgrove died. I went out, and of all places, I sat on the Mount Olives that night. I just looked out over Jerusalem, that gold dome just to shine it. And I said, God, I wouldn't be sitting where I am right now. Studying your word, preparing myself for ministry, had it not been for her. And now she's with you. Man. Godly mother. My friend, I hope today's made some sense. Church, try to remember before you get too frustrated, before you try to convince people of what God has to say, people that don't care what God has to say. And it's usually not going to be a bunch of drunks or a bunch of idiots wearing them audacious outfits they wear that mimic different various parts of the body, that's as far as I'll go with that, that march around the Capitol in Washington. It's usually going to be people that will tell you, well, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but now I'm just going to tell you, I, I just say just, you know, well, I, there's just things, I mean, I know. You'll always be that way until... He transforms your life. This is a covenant between God and people who quit arguing. And they denied themselves, didn't assert themselves. No, they denied themselves. And they took up their cross. And they died to who they were. And all their opinions and all their ideas. And they gave it all to him. And that's how they live their life. That's what this is for. Let's pray. God, I ask you to help us now. Lord, you've given us a word from you, but I pray you just help us, Lord. God, you know I was so nervous today. You know, my heart was just about to explode. I'm not even sure if I said it all right or made it clear. Will you make it clear right now, God? If I got something wrong, Lord, convict my heart that I could correct it. But I just pray right now, Lord, that we have heard a word from you today. Help us, God. Help us as Christians to understand our role in this world, that we are to be light in darkness, God. We're to love on these people that don't know you and tell them about you. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to stop trying to save people. Help us, Lord, to stop trying to convince people with evidence. It takes you, Lord. You have to transform that life. You have to call them. They have no means whatsoever of even coming to you. No desire to come to you. God, I pray that you just help us to know what you've called us to do and find peace in that. 
We do pray for our world. We do pray for our country. We pray for our leaders, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would help us to get busy. Not cursing the darkness so much, but being light in it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.